0: Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. This is the debut episode of the It's a Family Affair pod, which is the audio arm of the It's a Family Affair project that we are doing on the website. It's an examination of continental championship wrestling, which began in June of 1985, after having been southeastern championship wrestling since 1979, before that. Today on the show, we're very happy to have wrestling historian Carl Stern from When It Was Cool on to talk about the change from Southeastern to Continental and all things Continental. The Fullers, Jimmy Golden, The Armstrongs, Buddy Landell, Adrian Street, Rip Rogers, Dr. Tom, Austin Idol, Boutwall Auditorium, Gordon Soley, Ric Flair, so many topics we are going to talk about in this inaugural episode. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome to the first episode of It's a Family Affair podcast, an examination of continental championship wrestling. It's been quite a while since we've had our guest on the show, back in one of the very first couple episodes many years ago, but he's one of the best people to talk about this subject, whose last name is not Welch or James. To talk about all things Southeastern and Continental, we welcome back to the show Carl Stern. How's it going, Carl?
1: Oh, it's going great. Thank you very much for having me on here. I'm, I'm always excited to, to talk about uh, Continental Wrestling, Southeastern Wrestling, the, the Welch, Fuller, Fields, Golden whatever family. Um, You mentioned two great historian names there, obviously. Ron Fuller, the best person to know about any of this, but also Bo James is uh, just a tremendous, I go to Bo all the time with questions and stuff. And Between the two of us, we can largely figure it out, but I'm quite proud to say that, you know, in the 20, 25 years that Ron Fuller was largely AWOL from the wrestling community, doing his own thing, his hockey and whatever various business ventures he had. It was good old Carl here that was waving the flag for Continental Wrestling and Southeastern and keeping that history alive. And uh, Bo was doing a lot of his stuff up around Kingsport and the, the uh, Appalachian Mountain stuff. And uh, when he come along and started really you know, doing history of, of Continental as well, we were Keeping that, I mean, we were really exposing a lot of people who over the years never knew that much about these areas. And so I'm very proud to have at least, if if nothing else in my legacy as a wrestling historian stands up, that I at least kept that memory alive until Ron you know, came back out of the woodwork and started uh, his own podcast and stuff, which is an outstanding uh, podcast and I uh, highly recommend it. And so... I've always, I'm always up for talking good old Southeastern and Continental Wrestling.
0: Well, I mentioned this. Uh, I guess I'll get this plug out of the way. Um, Ron's Super stud cast next week, I think when it drops next week, is, view, is viewer mail, basically. And uh, I was one of the lucky people who got to be chosen to be on there. Um, And I asked Ron about the very subject that we're going to talk about today, the start of Continental. And if people haven't listened before, we had Ron on a couple months ago when he was uh, starting to do his book tour for Brutus. And it was it just happened to be right before uh, he left to go to Bob Armstrong's funeral. We had already had it scheduled before Bob passed away. And then we had to juggle the dates a couple times, and I said, "Well, can you do this day?" He's like, "Yeah, that's fine because we're getting ready to go head out to the to make the trip for the funeral." So it was it was really good timing on that that I got him before then. So you know I've you know I've been lucky to have Ron on the show, and hopefully we'll have him on again and maybe have some of the other guys on. we I mean we'll mention that in a little while. But uh, as I as I told him I. You know, being in the Mid-Atlantic, um, actually, by the time I started wrestling or watching wrestling, Continental may have actually already existed. I know I didn't start watching until sometime in 1985, which is when Continental started. But, you know, obviously, being in the Mid-Atlantic, we did not get Continental TV or Southeastern TV. We we had plenty of TV here. As people who have listened to our podcast with Mike Simpervivi know, this was a hot, this was you know, one of the battlegrounds between Crockett and the WWF. So our TV had um, all the WWF shows and by that point, all of both Crockett shows. And since I lived between Baltimore and Philadelphia, I got to see them all on both. I get multiple times if I wanted. So we, you know, I probably had, you know, more than 12 hours of wrestling on, a weekend and then and I think that also includes AWA plus we weirdly got to watch world class off one of the UHF stations that was a seven hundred club affiliate. And then eventually we got Watts, you know, in eighty six. So this was a you know a humongous hotbed. But you know, we hadn't but you know, we had never seen Continental. I'd never seen Memphis at that point either because you know, again where we lived. So the first time I remember seeing Continental of any kind, was on Pro Wrestling This Week, the Joe Petticino-Gordon Scholey highlight show. And the first thing, the only, it may not be the first thing that I saw, but the first thing I remember was the angle between the Fullers and Kevin Sullivan and the New Giddy Headhunters when they attacked Ron on TV, which led to, the cage match with the third headhunter, which led to Doug Furnish ripping off the cage door. And that's the first time I remember seeing Continental. But obviously, you know, you being in Alabama, you saw them right from the start.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely so. I mean, I was, I, I watched probably, I mean, I'd been watching wrestling somewhat on and off since 79, 1978, 79. But, it was just sporadically because we really here in I'm in North Alabama, I kind of located sort of in a tri-state area myself. I'm in northwest Alabama, so I'm close to northern Mississippi and uh, western Tennessee. So like you, I was I had a lot of wrestling going on because I also got the Memphis stuff and a world class. And, you know, uh, sometimes even Bill Watts uh, was up this far out of Mississippi stations and, you know, all that good stuff. But uh, Southeastern Wrestling, Ron Fuller's Southeastern Wrestling, uh, coming out of Gulf Coast, he had done, after he had bought Gulf Coast, there was kind of this weird period of time where he had Southeastern Wrestling, and it was a changeover from Gulf Coast, but it wasn't really the full-fledged Southeastern Wrestling. That took place in the fall of 1980, October of 1980, uh, Ron Fuller purchases the rights to North Alabama from Nick Goulis, and that gets him Birmingham, Alabama, which becomes his biggest town. It also got him Huntsville, Alabama, which he actually rarely ran, uh, Florence, Alabama, which he ran sometimes, but it gave him TV clearance here in North Alabama. And so in October of 1980, he launched the what I consider the full-fledged, traditional, what everybody remembers, a classic southeastern championship wrestling and that ran until the summer of 1985 and i was watching this whole time i mean i was watching from there i was really super heavy into it in like 1982 1983 which i will still argue were the best two years of that promotion no matter what you called it Um, but in june of 1985 that's when it's really suddenly and abruptly changed to Continental Wrestling. And so, yeah, I had had a few years, at least, you know, about five years or four and a half years of back study for what became Continental Wrestling uh, there in the summer of uh,
0: 1985. It's interesting because, um, you know, um, a lot of this stuff is available on, to watch on YouTube, plus it's available, you know, through through various places. But it's funny because the last episode of Southeastern is on YouTube, and the first episode of Continental, among others, are on YouTube. So it's funny that it goes from just being sort of a regular studio show, mm-hmm. the very next week it's now got a new name it's now being it's gone from the studios in dothan to birmingham to uh arena show batwell auditorium um yeah it it was very abrupt i mean it it really was a big big
1: change and we weren't really as fans we weren't really acclimated to that it was kind of sprung on us like we had no idea is if you were just a regular fan watching the show as i was and june of 85 you had no idea this was coming it was from you literally on that last show in june of 85 and over at my website which is when it was cool.com i do the southeastern wrestling project which has all the tv shows embedded that are still out there available uh, in order to watch so if you go to that june 85 and watch that last tv show it's almost an afterthought. It's like everything is going just like it ever was. You're watching the same show you've been watching for years, and then suddenly it's like Charlie Platt's like, uh, "Well, next week we're going to be coming to you from Battle Auditorium. Gordon Sully's going to be here as announcer. It's the same stars you've already always known. We're just, you know, uh, you know, expanding as Continental Wrestling, and you, you had no idea. Hey, that's going to be the last time for years I see Charlie Platt." The Dothan TV studio, which I loved, loved the atmosphere of it, uh, going to the – now, mind you, it was a big deal because now Birmingham was always uh, the, the big arena. That's where the big matches took place. So you're like, wow, we're going to get to see the, the big show every week? Well, not necessarily because they started taping a lot of uh, – squash matches and stuff to go on there. And to me, it lost a lot of the atmosphere. It was necessary that Ron Fuller did that to keep up with the the expanding nature of wrestling. You know, Bill Watts goes from Mid-South to UWF, and a lot of the other promotions were kind of making a world, you know, world class. and They had some sort of, they weren't regional anymore. They they were trying to expand and uh, keep up with what the WWF was changing the landscape. So it was necessary, but looking back on it, it really lost a lot of that uh, personality that it had. Uh, It's still like 1985, 1986 Continental is really, really good. Still, it's really, really good. But then it starts kind of tapering off and you lose, I guess, that intimacy is what you lost, whereas you were in that. That uh, TV studio, you could see like, everybody was more up close. Everybody was, uh, t- the action was tighter. And then you just imagine, man, I go to this big arena in Birmingham and I get to see these grudge matches that they're talking about. And then they come back on TV and kind of put it in context. And all that was, it, it was just change. It was necessary change, but it was change. And it, that summer was was really, really interesting. That, that next Continental Show, that first Continental Show, had such a different feel to it, and not in a bad way. It had a, a different feel to it in a good way. They had Ric Flair there on TV, uh, Gordon Soley call it Like it seemed like it was big deal. Like it seemed like it was now important. Um, it was just hard to hold on to that feeling after a while.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, you can see that with a lot of the shows around the same time. I mean, by that time. Crockett had already gone to arena tapings and, you know, like you said, Watts would eventually, you know, they were still doing, I think they were still in the Irish McNeil at that point, but they soon would be going, you know, out of Shreveport and taping in Tulsa or places like that. So, and, you know, Florida was pretty much already gone by then. So, and World Class had never had a studio, you know, so or at least on the, you know, the main world-class show that everybody saw so yeah it was just uh the way the way things were going it's you know i like i said i talked to ron about this on his show that's coming up and he just basically said yeah it was you know everybody was doing it and we had to try and compete and you know we had to de-regionalize the name make it seem more national you know five cameras arena gordon etc etc
1: yeah. And, uh, you know, I said earlier, 1982 and 1983 were really the peak of whether you call it, you know, the, the, the Ron Fuller Southern era from whether you call it Gulf Coast or Southeastern Continental, that 1982, 83 was the sweet spot. It was just everything clicked perfectly. 1984 was a year of diminishing returns like the early part of 84 was pretty good but it just got less and i mean they were running a super small crew by the end of 84 and so when they start up in early 85 it's it's needing a change it really is it's um not bad by any means uh still some really good stuff happening there but it's it's clearly a transitional period, and it's clearly lost momentum. And had Ron Fuller not done that, I really wonder how long it could have continued in the form it was because it definitely needed uh, a boost. It was, it was getting really stagnant, and I think that helped a lot. I mean, it, it really did. After it changed over to Continental, Throughout the rest of 85, that half of the year, early 86, that is some good, good stuff. I mean, they're bringing in some national names or more national-ish names, at least names you've seen out of the magazines and stuff. Kevin Sullivan, obviously, being one of the bigger ones who really changed the whole dynamic of that area. You had Dick Slater in for a little while. Dutch Mantel comes in uh, for a couple different runs. Buddy Landell, you have... These cha- these people that were never around for southeastern like Dutch Mantell was never there for the the Pensacola version of southeastern. Dick Slater wasn't, My Buddy Landell wasn't. So you get the Kevin Sullivan wasn't. It was Knoxville, but we're talking about just the southern end of southeastern, and that was great. I mean, it, it really did make you feel like, okay, this is important. This is more than just Birmingham, Alabama wrestling or Pensacola wrestling. This is this is a more going places. I've heard of these stars. I've read about these people in the magazines. I've heard about Kevin soul, but I've seen some of these people on the superstation out of Atlanta. And that, you know, it was really the downturn of the wrestling industry itself that brought down Continental, not anything they necessarily were doing. Uh, They, uh, Ron really did a great job with, with uh, beyond even what he had to work with. I mean, he, he, it was really was a very overlooked uh, super promotion for that time period. So many uh, that because the the insider hardcore fans, the people that read the Observer and stuff like that, were in the know. Okay, it was an area that got totally overlooked because they didn't communicate. They didn't you know have anybody reporting that stuff. They didn't have anybody feeding the information to to Dave Meltzer or anything like that. Also, Ron Fuller and less Ron Fuller, more Bob Armstrong, who booked it, kept the national magazines out of there because of the, in my opinion, the it was not a good idea. But they they, their idea was, well, people don't know what we're doing here and they're not trying to steal our people and whatever. And who knows? Maybe that was the right thing to do. I don't know. But it all but it kept the larger country from knowing just how good things were down here where places like Memphis and certainly bill Watts and certainly world-class and even Pacific Northwest. were getting a lot more coverage. And so for the general fan who just, you know, is looking at who is a big time wrestling fan and wants to know more about all the magazines and stuff, they really don't know about continental. And I think they really categorize it as well. It must not have been nothing much because You never read about it when actually that wasn't the case at all. It was a far superior product to a lot of that stuff that was going on and quite honestly outlasted a lot of that stuff as well.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, for the general fan, like I said, I'm here in the Mid-Atlantic and, you know, all I know about Southeastern is seeing their ratings every month in PWI. It's like you you know, like you said, you rarely and I really wasn't a reader of the other magazines. I was pretty much an aftermath guy. So other so how I knew the names, it was like, you know, I could see you know, these Fuller guys are there and then like you said, in eight you know, lots of Fuller's and lots of Armstrongs. And then the occasional person that you know of through the magazines, it's like you said, Dutch or Austin Idol and you know, not long after Continental starts, you get Adrian Street. You know, who was certainly yes. a big magazine guy. Mm-hmm. You know, very well known. But other than that, it's like I don't remember. I think I don't remember seeing the Fullers regularly in Memphis until I went to college, and that oh, was yeah. in, and that mm-hmm. was in 1988. And that's because they made the deal to go on score. And mm-hmm. you know, that's when you know that's when uh, Robert was booking Memphis. So. That was the first time I had really seen you know Fuller and Gold and those guys. I told, I told Ron when I had on the podcast. I said, you know, when I started watching and where I lived, to me, Robert always was the Tennessee stud. You know <laughs> I, had, I had like never seen Ron before. It's like I knew his name, but it was like, okay, he's Robert Fuller's brother. you know to me, he was Robert Fuller's brother, not the other way around. Yeah, that's, well,
1: that's That's interesting because that is a, a perspective you would have if you weren't from this area or a fan in the early 70s. Ron Fuller's career is really interesting. Compared to a lot of other people from that generation, his career wasn't really that long. I mean, you're talking about from roughly 1970 to 1987 or 88, and he's out which sounds like, you know, a fairly long career. was well, 20-some odd years. But when you go back and look at a lot of his contemporaries, gosh, a lot of them were around until they were literally geriatric and, and still, you know, popping up in places. Ron was super hot when he first started. Like, he was getting booked in St. Louis and big star in Florida and Georgia. He's on all these TVs and It's a combination, I think, of the fact that Buddy Fuller was this promoter and respected, and that Eddie Graham liked Ron. And here's Ron at six foot nine inches tall. He's a giant, but he doesn't wrestle like a giant. And so here's a guy that a lot of people saw as, oh man, we can do something with. But he derailed his own career by buying Knoxville and setting up there. Now, mind you, it was a good move for him. Who knows, you know, he may have never shook out to have been a major national star, but what he did do was promote very successfully in Knoxville, but that took him out of eyesight of anybody else other than, you know, the occasional runs he had in Memphis and occasionally popping up in Georgia. Unless you lived in Knoxville or Birmingham or Mobile or somewhere like that, you were not aware of Ron, and well, I think it's really
0: just a really interesting career he had. It's certainly not a stretch to project that had he not bought Knoxville, that he probably by the mid seventies or late seventies probably would have been NWA champion when you consider that he's you know, he's a top of the card he's a top of the card guy and a favorite of Eddie Graham. He's been being booked in St. Louis all the time, and he's even done shots for Vince Senior. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you know, and had been in Georgia. And, you know, uh, legit athlete credentials, third-generation wrestler. Like, you know, it's easy to see that, you know, he could have been championed one of the times Harley was in the late 70s because everything makes sense. Yeah, no, you're exactly right.
1: Uh, that's what, if it, he was absolutely would have had one of those runs Harley had. You know, Harley, Harley, even though he had all these different world title reigns, they were mostly short and they were mostly transitional reigns to get from one to the other because he was so dependable. They liked him. And, and, you know, all the reasons why Harley Race is great is clearly why you want him there. But no no question with the rapport he had with Jack Briscoe and the rapport he had with Harley Race and uh, Terry Funk, yeah, there's no no doubt that, you know, you get to that time period where Dory uh, Jr. is pulling the stunt he pulled with Jack Briscoe or Jack Briscoe needs off the road or Terry Funk to get to Dusty Rhodes or something, or something like that. You absolutely could have seen Ron in there for a moment. But now you, you've got to assume he doesn't get hurt or something like that. And Ron was kind of injury-prone a little bit though, with, with knee injuries and stuff. Uh, his... Because of, I think the fact he was six foot nine inches tall and he was kind of lanky, but still muscular. I mean, he wasn't a, a light guy. When you think of Ron Fuller, you don't think of like, you know, Kendall Wyndham or, a, a, a you know, Greg Donya, he was heavier than that and taller than that. So it's, it's really interesting that, you know, maybe he, his body wouldn't have held up or something. I don't know. I, I It's just his career is very very interesting to me. I think he's one of the more uh, overlooked personalities there ever was because you look at the way they were booking him in the seventies, and no doubt they absolutely considered that he might be a a, a, somebody to hold the world title for a moment.
0: Well, you know, he's told this story on the SudCast where, you know, Sam had him wrestle three TVs in a row, and he was like, you know, he like beat terry in a match and then like he you know like he beat pat you know he beat like he wrestled you know he was wrestling like all the above the title guys all on like three tvs in a row so obviously and you know if he you know if you have sam's blessing and you have eddie graham's blessing then you're Mm -hmm. obviously you're obviously a made man plus like i said being in the family
1: can you imagine the the turn things would have taken Had Ron continued that trajectory, and at the same time, David Von Erich had lived with Fritz trying to push in, how that might have, we might have instead of ended up with uh, Ric Flair, Harley Race, Dusty Rhodes, that whole era of those titles swapping back and forth between them, that we might have got an era of Ron Fuller, David Von Erich. Ric Flair certainly would have still been in there. Harley, Dusty, still trying occasionally get it, get the jet. Like, how weirdly different wrestling history would have turned out had that been the case before, well, all, before we get to, like, that Crockett era.
0: Well, I was going to say, you know, it's like, you know, I think, I think wrestling fans' favorite game is to play what if, whether it's did guys go to certain places when they did or did they get injured or did they – you know, like, if Magnum doesn't get hurt, what happens to Crockett? You know, it's not only Magnum, who presumably, you know, beats Flair and whatever, but you know, does Magnum, how long does Magnum stay before, because you could, God knows what Vince would have done with him. And then, you know, because of Magnum, what happens to Nikita? What happens to Barry? You know, from that arc, and then you know, what if Ted, you know, what if Ted goes to Crockett Instead of going to the WWF, there's no million dollar man. You know what if, what if Gino doesn't die? You can assume Gino goes to Crockett, and you know be- either becomes a horseman or becomes, or he becomes a horseman and Flair becomes a babyface. You know, there's, you know, wrestling fans love to play that game.
1: Oh yeah, no no doubt. <coughs>
0: uh, but anyway, back back to back to Continental. You said the very first show, which is what we're going to be writing about for the first episode, or the f- first arc on the podcast. Um, they brought in Flair, and Flair actually wrestles a fairly long TV match. And of course, what I don't recall off the top of my head because I haven't written it up yet is that's leading to the main event of that show, which is a dark match where Flair is teaming with Ron against Bullet Bob and Lord Humongous.
1: That's right. What a weird, what a weird, uh, you know, main events ordeal. Humongous, who was Jeff Van Camp at that point, and I'd just done a whole giant podcast about the history of the Lord Humongous character, another very strange and interesting character. But yeah, he had turned, he'd been being managed by Ron Fuller and uh, had turned on him. And Ron was doing the old, you know, I'm kind of, I got this monster here and I'm kind of taking advantage of him. He's my heavy, but, you know, I'm sort of doing him wrong kind of deal. And in uh, the fact, the the the, the storyline for the last Southeastern Wrestling show was Ron was blackmailing. Him. He had a picture of him without his mask on. And he had it in this, of course, this envelope and he's using it to blackmail him and uh, comes out that, Bob Armstrong comes out and snatches the envelope away from Ron Fuller while he's not looking, opens it up, and, of course, there's nothing in there. It was a ploy all along, and so that leads to Jeff Van Camp, Lord Humongous, now teaming with Bob Armstrong, who is the lead babyface in the promotion, against Ron Fuller. And So Ron Fuller needs a partner, and Ron, of course, is doing his stud stable deal, but uh, in, like, June of 85, there's there's not much of the stud stable left. It's basically had been Lord Humongous. Now there's still um, Jimmy Golden was part of it and Boomer H Lynch who was Tom Lynch. I mean he was part of it. So it wasn't like big main event name. So what he does is he goes out and gets with um, Rick Flair, the world heavyweight champion and so you get these two heels to team together against this odd combination of Bob Armstrong and uh, Lord Humongous. Uh, They did tape a TV squash for the first one of of Ric Flair against uh, Josh Stroud. It goes, like you said, very competitive for a while, but, I mean, they've got Ric Flair on their first TV show. That's why they've got him there, and it does make it seem better and more important. And at this time, if I remember correct, Ron Fuller was also, like, in a click and a little stable deal with The Flame, uh, uh, who Jody Hamilton as uh, the assassin. It was The Flame and Southeastern and Continental. And so they're teaming up together as well. So it's, it's a real – in fact, they even do a deal where they two of them's got the singles titles, which were the Southeastern and Continental titles, and they do a tag team match where the championships change and Ron Fuller and and the flame end up with the two uh, major singles titles.
0: It is funny to watch Jody Hamilton as the flame, given obviously he's most known as the assassin because I guess they, I guess continent or Southeastern had used lots of fake assassins. And so when the real assassin comes in, he can't be the assassin because everybody thinks It's one of I think I was watching an episode from '84, and I think that assassin was Ken Timms. I think. Well, okay, so there's
1: there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of argument about that. Okay. Uh, So, no, the uh, that said the '84, the Ron Fuller's world famous assassin is uh, probably it's either Randy Barber. Or Bob Owens. Now, it's one of the two. That's something we need to ask Ron Fuller about because I've been argued on both of them by people that were there at the time. It certainly wasn't Ken Timms yet. He would come along just a little bit. Okay. Uh, So it was one of those guys. But, yeah, there were lots of assassins. And uh, that's always the story that's told. I'm not so sure... That's true. So much as Jody Hamilton wanted to do a new character, wanted to do this solo Flame deal, and they're like, "Well, you know, we've had Roger Smith and Randy Cully all in here as assassins, so let's do something different with the real assassin." But definitely, I mean, he was a major uh, deal, deal there as that character as the Flame. I
0: know. I um, I don't. I'm not sure exactly when in the chronology it comes, but there's a famous promo that he does as the flame where he's, where he's shooting pictures of the Armstrongs, like out in the woods.
1: Yes. And that was a, something you would never see today. (laughs) He pulls out a gun and starts shooting a a photograph of Bob Armstrong. Uh, He was a, (laughs) <laughs> very, I mean, it was over the top to be sure, but man, the look, Jody Hamilton was a scary dude. He was a very gruff voice guy. He was, uh, you, know, you look at the guy, he's, you know, clearly pretty bad overweight at this point in time. He's obviously an older guy, uh, but he's one of these dudes that you would not ever, ever want to mess with. He's gruff. And he's got this gruff voice because this great mean guy promo and, it just works so well. I mean, it just absolutely works so well.
0: Well, it's funny, even when he, you know, shows up in WCW, you know, almost five or six years later after this, he's still, I mean, he's, yes, he's, he's much beefier and he's a manager, but he's still, you know, you know that doesn't, that doesn't help you or uh, hurt you with cut a great promo. He's still pretty scary, even in, you know, 93, 94.
1: Definitely so. I mean, definitely.
0: Uh, he's a guy that I don't know, you know, I, he he
1: was used for with WCW as a trainer and stuff. And he had his own training school and all that. Uh, you know, he's a guy that had a lot of knowledge to pass along and, and good for him for doing so. I mean, he was, certainly had a, a lot of great psychology. And um, I mean, as far as heels go, best heels probably ever saw.
0: And, and it, you know, if we if we step away from the Fullers and the Armstrongs for a second, the other foundation of southeastern and you know certainly the continental era is the Nightmares, Danny Davis and Ken Wayne, who at this point are still masked and are and still in the middle of their feud with the Rat Patrol slash Rich Cousins.
1: Yes, the Nightmares are. You know, even though they got their start up in Memphis and, uh, you know, that was a gimmick that originated up there, it worked best in Southeastern Continental. No question about it. I don't know. I think it was maybe they were able to be a more higher profile focus on, on the smaller territory. But for whatever reason, it just worked. I mean, it just worked. Uh, they were super athletic. There hadn't really been anybody like them around. Uh, they had very athletic. They were They had these great teams to work with. I mean, Johnny Rich, Scott Armstrong, Steve Armstrong, Tommy Rich when he comes into the area later. They have this great uh, after they turned babyface. They have this great feud with Jerry Stubbs and Tony Anthony. They just it, it was just a great act that worked best
0: there in Continental. I know that, uh, like you said, they have a long-standing feud with the Riches, which, you know, I mean, we'll see over the course of of this project. But, you know, they have all kinds of crazy gimmick matches with them, and, you know, they eventually lose their masks, which is when we get, you know, the Nightmares with the crazy face paint and all that stuff. And then, you know, they eventually turn turn babyface, and then you have the the really odd dynamic of these two guys who are great workers but are fairly small as babyfaces having to feud with Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden who are both, you know, six inches to a foot taller than both of them.
1: That's always been kind of interesting to me in that that visually seems, I mean, it's definitely different. Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, again, when you think of continental wrestling, southeastern wrestling, really more continental wrestling because that's where they solidified their, their team. They were l- largely, especially Jimmy Golden was more singles wrestler uh, there in southeastern. They come together, the, the, the tag team itself, uh, you know, for continental. And again, you know, you've got these two tall guys who are great mat wrestlers. they got these two... Shorter, smaller high flyers to do all this bumping for them, take all these bumps. All of them, there's not a a bad interview in that whole bunch. I know people don't really give Jimmy Golden any credit because of Bunkhouse Buck or whatever. But look, Jimmy Golden cut great promos back when he was singles wrestler Jimmy Golden. And, of course, Robert Fuller definitely did. But, hey, Kim Wayne and Danny Davis were good promos, too. And it was just a great little program. I mean, honestly, I never saw anybody, the Nightmares, work with anybody that they didn't do a great job with. It seemed like they were very versatile, whether they were working against big bruisers or small flyers or a combination of the two. They were able to work to that team's strengths. Uh, Some of my favorite stuff was the Tommy Rich, when Tommy Rich and Steve Armstrong were teaming together, the Nightmares worked. So good with them. And that's a vastly different team than Robert Fuller and Jimmy Gold. And that's a vastly different team than even Johnny Rich and Scott Armstrong or Johnny Rich and Steve Armstrong. Very, very good. I mean, they were so, such a versatile team.
0: And the interesting thing, the time that we're talking about, the beginning of Continental, Robert isn't even technically there because he's, he's out injured and he's a baby face. So he's actually been... He's actually been feuding with the stud stable. So it's not he's getting ready to come back when Continental starts and there's gonna be a big angle where Robert turns and rejoins the studs, you know, which you know that's one thing you can always count on in Southeastern is you know, every so often there's gonna be a humongous face turn or heel turn between somebody in that feud, you know, f- you know, famously, probably the most, the biggest one was probably when Bob Armstrong turned heel on Ron Fuller in 1982, you know, because Bob had never been a heel. And, you know, you can go back and listen to, to Ron talk about this. So what a great heel Bob was for that year or so.
1: Oh my goodness. Look, the Bob Armstrong heel thing is something I've, I've really been on a, a huge kick about uh, over the last couple of years, because the more I think about it, the more I study it, the more it is really one of the best heel runs I've, I've ever, ever seen. It was tremendous how he just become this very standard, but good hometown baby face, nice guy, of georgia fireman former member of the marines you know a tough guy weightlift. you know the dad of the neighborhood that lift weights whatever how uh, he changed from being that guy to a 40 year old dude that was the biggest jerk you've ever seen in your life like the most hateable dude you got this 40 year old guy who suddenly now mind you the year for this is very important, 1983. We're not talking about 2020, where you expect all these hipsters walking around with their tattoos and, and you know earrings and vaping and all this. And that ain't this. It's 1983. The ideal is a different thing then. So here is this 40-year-old dude that goes out and gets his earrings, starts smoking cigarettes on TV, grows the worst mustache you've ever seen in the history of ever, We know he's got all these kids because they've been on TV all the time, Scott and Brad and Steve, so we know there must be a Mama Armstrong somewhere, yet he's talking all the time about gallivanting around with this Fannie Mae Tutwiler uh, who we don't know what it is, but he kind of implies it's a woman he's taking advantage of for her money, and doing this on TV, he slaps his kid, Brad, on one episode. He slaps the announcer, Charlie Platt, on another one. He cuts the most... Obnoxious! I am really the good guy, but you idiot fans don't are, are don't under, are too dumb to understand promos. Like every promo he cut, which was just so good, was him defending or telling you why he was right, and it was clearly being obnoxious. Like here I am, uh, you know, or disingenuous I should say. Here I am helping Ron Fuller up. He's fell down, and now he's hurt his knee, and I'm just trying to help him out of the ring when clearly you just saw him kick the guy's knee out from under him and do all this cheating stuff. It was so good, just so good.
0: It's funny. I mean, we have we have some of that, not a lot, but it's funny that we also have, because um, I've seen some of this recently, is when Bob was a heel in the Smoky Mountain USWA feud when he was – Uh, Smoky Mountain commissioner, and this was, it's funny that it was after Smoky Mountain had closed, but they had kept the angle going in Memphis. And you have Bob there as a heel, and even then he's really, he's really great as, again, you know, the best heels think they're right, and a lot of times it's funny because they actually are. But, you know, the best heels think what they're doing is right, and he's great as a heel commissioner.
1: Oh, yeah, certainly. Certainly so. I mean, just I mean, it just shows a different and I I don't know that you can ever recapture this time again. In fact, I'm sure you can't because the world's a different place. And and I was never a giant fan of kayfabe anyway. I just always found it very disingenuous. But at the same time. You, there was a level of suspicion of disbelief that you could and like I honestly believe like when Ron Fuller walked or excuse me, Bob Armstrong walked and Ron Fuller too, but Bob Armstrong for sure, when he walked out of that dressing room onto the set, it was real for him. I mean he 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 Made it real. Now, he wasn't really hitting people and really didn't know the finish, but, but in his mind, acting, he was that person that day, and it was so believable. It wasn't playing a character, it wasn't reading a script, it wasn't acting like hometown babyface Bob Armstrong or evil bad guy heel Bob Armstrong. It was natural, it was from a natural place, and the best actors are that way, right? They, they go out and they just become that person, that character. And I think that's tremendous.
0: Yeah, like you said, that stuff's definitely out there to see. It's it's, it's really fun to watch. And, uh, go ahead. No, no, it's, you're,
1: you're exactly right. Uh, especially when everybody's clicking on the same page. Like, seldom ever with Southeastern Continental did you have somebody that just seemed like they didn't fit. Now, I could probably sit here and... If I thought about it long enough, I could think of somebody that just, you know, maybe was a, a square peg in a round hole. But for the most part, they, everybody fit. Now, Jerry Stubbs was another natural. Mr. Olympia, he just fit. He just seemed at, at ease and in comfort with the rest of those. Jimmy Golden, Robert Fuller, all these, all of these characters. Tony Anthony, Dirty White Boy later on. Tom Pritchard. They all just fit and seemed like they were in the right place at the right time. If anything, Kevin Sullivan was kind of a little bit of a outlier there in that he really didn't fit necessarily perfectly in there, but that was good. It, it, that played to his character in that, oh, man, this is kind of a wild card here. We really don't know what to expect out of this, with these headhunters and stuff, what's going on here. And that kind of made that, that whole era a lot of fun right there.
0: Well, the great thing, too, like you said, is it's a relatively small territory with a relatively small crew, which means everybody gets plenty of time. It's not like, say, like the sort of equivalent period that we're talking about in Crockett, which is like sort of the beginning of the expansion. You know, there are plenty of guys in like late 85 on Crockett TV. You could go a couple of weeks without seeing, and then you, know, you had this thing where they were also – sort of for a time, doing different programs for the Carolinas versus TBS. Because, like, I remember at the time, like, we would see the Midnight Express on syndicated TV, but I didn't have uh, TBS then. So a lot of the whole Miss Atlanta Lively stuff we never saw because Ronnie was only doing that on TBS. It's like, if he was on syndicated stuff, he was probably just Ronnie. So... You know, and like, you know, when they when the Midnights came in and they were feuding with Buzz and Dick Slater, that was like a Georgia-only feud that, like, we never saw. But, you know, again, Continental has, you know, 10, 15 guys at the most, so that means you may not get many matches on the card, but they're going to be long and they're going to be good and everybody's going to get TV time, and more importantly, they're going to get interview time. So, you know, like when you get... When you get Adrian eventually, and then eventually Adrian turns face, you know when he's when he's presented with an even more rotten version of himself, which is Rep Rogers and Brenda Britton. You know, plenty of time for them, even though you know that would be, you know, sort of a mid card feud if you if you just assume the Armstrongs and the Fullers are on top.
1: Yeah, I think so too. You brought some interesting names right then that. You talk about people that fit in perfectly. Rip Rogers had been around in Southeastern earlier on, and then he comes in later in Continental and fused with Adrian Street. He always fit very well in there. I mean, he had great programs with uh, the junior heavyweight division early on, and then later with Austin Idol. They had a great program, and then by the time he gets to Adrian Street. But I don't think anybody ever – fit in as well immediately as Adrian Street did. Like when he came in as a heel, he was the perfect heel for this area. Just, I mean, he rubbed all those old, you know, antiquated sensibilities the wrong way. He was a super tough guy and so that further infuriated the people that were predisposed not to like that sort of gimmick or whatever because there wasn't nothing you could do about it. Uh, He could beat you up. (laughs) And so, and then when he turned babyface, it was so much better because then this effeminate guy was beating up the bad guys, and you could laugh even further, like, ha-ha, you know, at that. And he was so good at it, that that English style he brought in. We had seen that before with people like Tony Charles, and he, he had been a regular in the area, really good. But, man, there was a viciousness with, with Adrian Street that made it so much better, made him so much better.
0: Yeah, and you know, and then you know, he, he fused with and fused with Wendell Coley. There's somebody I don't think we haven't mentioned very yeah. often. And yeah, and like you said, there's it's just a small crew, and everybody's allowed to get over. And then there's you know a couple guys we haven't mentioned because they're sort of lower at the card, but still great hands. And that's like Roy Lee Welch, who was one of the Welches, and and Bill Ash, who you know had been there for a while, went through a couple of different gimmicks, but always was like a solid opening match heel that you could rely on.
1: Yeah, and, and Roy Lee Wells uh, co-owned part of the promotion. I, I didn't know that for many, many years, that, that he was a uh, one of the investors in the promotion and because he always had this lower card role in Southeastern wrestling. He was essentially an enhancement wrestler. Uh, he did get a more pronounced role in Continental as a junior heavyweight wrestler, and he never really got, I, I don't think, the... The credit he deserved. He was a fine, if if unspectacular, in-ring wrestler. He was good on promos. The the king gimmick, I mean, that was a little, I don't know. Obviously, everybody in wrestling knew Jerry Lawler, even if he didn't wrestle in the area, was the king. So it seemed a bit of a ripoff. And maybe it was supposed to seem that way to further get him heel heat. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, clearly... That's the biggest success of Roy Lee Welch's career was what happened there in Continental. Tim Horner, same way. I mean, Tim Horner got little pushes in different places, but nothing like, I mean, he was a featured junior heavyweight champion there. And Wendell Cooley, uh, no, no doubt his biggest success certainly came in Continental and uh, very good, too. I mean, the guy, another guy that perfectly fit while he was – You know, a little bit didn't fit perfectly. I don't think he ever did really in mid-south wrestling or in Puerto Rico or really even in Memphis. He did in Continental. It was just right. Of course, he was down from uh, the Pensacola area uh, where the promotion was based in its its, uh, southeastern days especially. Uh, So maybe he just, you know, had the right mindset, had the right, you know, attitude or whatever, but he, he worked very well there.
0: Yeah, like you said, you've and then, you know, um guys you mentioned that certainly would become you know more of a fixture when Ron moved back to Knoxville, like you know, Buddy and you know then, you know he brings Ron right back. And you know, that's that's like a different era, but still again, you know, it, when you look at the history of wrestling, when you sort of know when you look deeper, you can always see Guys like using the same guys on their crews, and you know when you, I remember I think he's mentioned this before. You know like uh, guys that we're now seeing him talk about in Knoxville in the in the mid 70s are going to are you know become fixtures, especially um, that Robert would use in different places like Frankie Kane and Toru Tanaka and people like that.
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm,
0: I've, I'm often um,
1: a little bit confused on who was booking when, at what point uh, in there, because like you said, the, the, there's there's some of these names like never showed up in in southeastern continent. I'm, I'm never really totally clear on when Ron's booking it versus Robert versus Bob Armstrong versus for a little while, but Robley came in. And uh,
0: for the most
1: part in the Continental era, you got to think it was Robert and Bob swapping in and out for the most part. So some of that stuff gets a little uh, confusing to me, and, and uh, certainly I guess they probably all had a hand in it, that's why some of the names you mentioned don't necessarily pop up in that, that Continental time frame of things.
0: But in a way, it's almost better that you can't tell who's booking as opposed to, say, Memphis when you know you can look at a card or read the angles or watch the tv and you could probably tell whether it's Lawler or Jarrett or Dundee that's booking because of who's being featured and what the angles are
1: yeah I agree and a a, a lot of that I mean it's 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 really uh, I think a lot of egos aside in this era, era. I mean, like you don't have like a Dusty Rhodes where he's just on top, on top, on top. Yeah, I mean, definitely the, the the Fullers were featured there for sure. And Bob Armstrong was featured there for sure. But man, there were so many people that were put on top that weren't, that wasn't Austin Idol and Adrian Street and, and, and so many others. I mean, it, it, Wendell Cooley, Tom Pritchard, Dirty White Boy. I mean, there was a good, there was a good flow. I think a good flow and regular exchange, regardless of who booked what when. Uh, there was a good rotation,
0: I, I suppose. It, it never seemed to really get stale to me. And of course, you also have a different priority if you are the booker versus you're the booker and you're also one of the owners. Where, yes, you want to get your guys over and you know you want everything to click, but you know it's. If you're also the one making the money, then you're going to want to make sure everything works. And if that means, hey, I have to pull myself back and work in a mid card feud for a while while somebody else is hot and goes on top, that's best for my company, you know, not necessarily my ego.
1: Yeah, I don't think egos ever seem like a real problem there to me. Like, I've I never heard really any stories of. You know, people just being out of control. I mean, I, I know Austin Otto rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I, I think that's just his personality. type. certainly doesn't seem to be the case with Ron. Ron and will got along great and still do. Um, so, you don't really hear those horror stories, uh, at least as long as Ron was there, about, you know, people hijacking things to their own like they just, you know, couldn't. This guy always had to be champion always had to be featured always had to get the world title match when it came through town you, you don't hear that sort of stuff seemed like everybody seemed like it was one of the more easier areas just to get along with
0: Well it seems like anecdotally that both of Ron's companies you know were relatively short trips, small territories with good pay and good standard of living either you're living, you know you're living on the lake in knoxville or you're living you know on the beach in pensacola i mean i think it's certainly a sign of what a great time most of those guys had considering how many of them ended up a staying in the promotion and b staying there after they were done
1: i think so too i I think a lot of it did have to do with the lifestyle i mean you get to you know, live on the beach. Pensacola Beach is one of the most underrated beach locations anywhere. I've been to Pensacola Beach? It's miles and miles and miles of beautiful beach. You're not cramped up and crowded like you are other places. It's uh, not super heavily populated. It's just a good place to be. Why wouldn't you want to live there? And uh, to get along with all the people and to have relatively short drives. Even Birmingham, which was your probably your most lengthy. Place until they, you know, get back in Knoxville or whatever, you're only talking about just a few hours away. Uh, you're going to be back home that night, so that's that's great. I mean, I think there's no reason why you wouldn't want to work there. Uh, it was just you know, work out, eat good food, lay on the beach, and go do your job that night and get paid decent enough to it. Ron was one of those few promoters that kind of equally paid everybody on the show, whether you were early card or later card. And so it didn't matter. You didn't I think that kept egos in check too. It didn't really matter if you were the main event because you weren't necessarily getting that extra high cut of pay and having to cut throat to get it. You pretty much paid everybody equally and rotated everybody around. So you, you just had a good gig going there.
0: Yep. And these are some of the things that hopefully we'll be analyzing as time goes by uh, on the podcast and on the website when we do uh, the write-ups. Um, and like I said, we're going to have this pod will pop up every so often in the regular feed with guests. Um, like I said, hopefully Bo will be on when you know things calm down for him, and we're hoping to get some of the some of the wrestlers on eventually uh, to talk about either what's going on when we're writing about it, or maybe just sort of their career arcs. Overall, so it'll be kind of a mismatch of things um, that hopefully people can look forward to. Carl, I want to thank you very much for taking some time out today. So I know you have this this, this burgeoning empire of yours. Um, so go ahead and tell us about it. Well, thank you very
1: much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my passion project, which is whenitwascool.com. It's more than just wrestling, more than just wrestling history, although that is a huge part of it. Uh, it is retro pop culture. Uh, we do have a podcasting network. We do a show just about every single day, uh, more days than not. We have a show on there dealing with either you know old TV shows, old movies, uh, lifestyle certainly a a healthy dose of pro wrestling history shows as well. All my pro wrestling history stuff's over there. We are not inundating you with pop-up ads and stuff like that. You Just come to When It Was Cool. You list our free shows right on the front page and uh, read our articles. But then if you want extra special, like, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, you want the extra crispy package, come on over to our Patreon, where for $1 or $5, you're going to get access to several hundred Podcast. If you love wrestling history, well, that's what it's all about, man. i do tons and tons and tons of wrestling history. A lot of it does focus around continental and southeastern, but wrestling in general as well. Hope you'll check it out. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me on here. I am honored. Uh, believe it or not, this is serendipitous how this happened. It was just um, maybe a few weeks ago. I ran across an old Odessa Steps magazine and it was great i was like wow there's I, I forgot i had this and so i had a good time looking back over that dot Com. I, I certainly invite everybody to to check it out
0: i'll say there aren't there aren't many of those around so, so i doubt it. i wouldn't call it worth anything but uh, i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed it the uh yeah, for people who want to go back way back in our archives, we—the last time you were on the podcast—tell you how long ago it was. We were talking about uh, Jason Aaron's Southern Bastards comic, which, you know, oh, again yeah. was was right in, in your sweet spot because it was about Alabama football and uh, all <laughs> sorts of of rural life. So it's one of those things where I occasionally ask. If if it's ever coming back, and I don't think I've either heard from either Jason about whether whatever happened to it, because it was still in the middle of the story, so it's not like they ever finished it.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, it's it's uh, quite regrettable because again, it was going seemingly a very interesting place. So uh, I mean, think I yeah, know. the problem
0: is I think I think well, one of the things is I think Jason just became very very busy because <laughs> he became a very yeah, super important,
1: popular yeah yeah I was gonna say
0: he's a very important I mean, he's writing Avengers so. You know he's, you know, and he's somebody I would love to. I I've told him before to come on the pod, and I said I will ask you absolutely nothing about about comic books. I said Mm. I will be very happy just to talk to you about Alabama wrestling and and -hmm. football. I said we don't even have to talk about comics.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. I don't know him. He's from very close to here. I don't know how I ever didn't run into him or whatever, but I didn't. But man. Those comics, boy, I could could spot some things, uh, some influences a mile away of of, of the life and culture around here. I I see those tropes all the time. Uh, He's one of my favorite writers, no doubt about
0: it. Yep. So, yeah, I would say definitely check his stuff out. Check out Carl's website. Carl, thanks again for doing the show. Um, We should hopefully have the first entry on the website up sometime in the next few days, hopefully. And I'm not sure when the next episode of this podcast will be but they'll be in an episode of the regular podcast Uh, probably sometime soon, probably wrestling, maybe not South maybe just a tad northern of Continental. That uh, could be the next podcast. If not, stay tuned. Thanks, everybody, and we will talk to you next time.